To all who have been called by the gospel and baptized with the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my favorite poems is called Ozymandias by P.B. Shelley. Anyone know that one? Ozymandias? There's a man who knows fine literature. My guy right there, Frank. In the poem, uh, the narrator is visited by this traveler who tells him about this journey that he took to an ancient land. And during his travels, he spotted a statue of Pharaoh or of a Pharaoh in the desert that clearly reached high into the heavens at one time. Okay, so this traveler sees this statue of a Pharaoh in the middle of a desert. And it used to reach high into the heavens. Only what was left of that statue were just a, a trunk of a pair of legs. And the head of the statue was halfway buried in the sand next to it. So the traveler approaches the statue and he looks on the pedestal. And here's what the words say on the pedestal. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. So the poem, of course, it's, it's satire. It's ironic because this is a commentary on the inevitable end of any proud human lofty work of evil. And this is the end of particularly those works which challenge and mock the God of the universe. In the end, they are all buried by the sands of time. They are left in the dustbin of history. So today we, we celebrate the day of Pentecost, this day on which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the first Christians, which gave birth to the Holy Christian Church as Jesus' promises of redemption were applied in this very powerful, very miraculous way. Now, rewind the clock from the day of Pentecost to about 2,000 years prior, give or take. Our Old Testament lesson, our Old Testament lesson this morning gives this, this account of what happened in the days directly following the flood, the great flood of the entire world. We have this example of a people who are hell-bent on a proud and lofty work in direct opposition to God. These people are just 100 years removed from a flood that judged the entire world. God wiped out the entire world because of human sin. And now here we are only 100 years later and they are in open rebellion once again. Only here's the Here's the difference this time. They knew that God had promised to do what? To not, to not flood the entire creation again. So, just like your toddler, maybe they were trying to push the boundaries with God, right? See what they could get away with. See how much He would take and see how far they could push Him. But here's the thing. God always, always punishes sin. He always judges sin. And whether he delays and lets our filthy works succumb to the sands of time, or whether he judges quickly, he always executes justice. Always. But Scripture also says 
While his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. In other words, while God does punish sin, he is always quick to extend mercy. And he's always quick to make a way for salvation and for righteousness. You're going to see that all at once he judges and punishes sin at Babel. But he also provides for salvation. This is the way that God works. And, and he fulfills this work about 2,000 years later, give or take, on the day of Pentecost. And so today I want to look at this Babel account. Uh, let's find out what happened there and let's see how it connects to the good news of Pentecost. So beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 11, it says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This is what you would expect, of course. God had just flooded the entire earth, and now He's starting over with this new people, this new creation of sorts. Starting over with Noah and his family, and this is all of Noah's descendants. This is only 100 years later. There's not enough time for new languages to form just yet. Okay, and it continues. It says, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. So as they settled into this new place, which is right around modern day Iran, as they settled there, they developed this new technology. Now we, we hear the term bricks and we think, oh yeah, of course they had that. No, that's not the case. They didn't always have those things, especially in the, uh, in the more fertile parts of the earth where they came from. They didn't have these types of bricks. All of a sudden they had this new type of technology. They had these sun-dried bricks. They had this sticky tar. That's what bitumen is. It's the sticky tar that they could use to uh, put them together. So there's a lesson for us here, even in these bricks. Now that we have this amazing new technology, how should we use it? Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do it, yeah? I could go in a million different directions with that, uh, and I don't have time. That's a sermon for another day. But we must think about these wonderful pieces of technology that we now possess, and if we're using them in a God-pleasing way. Let's move on from that. Noah's descendants didn't get that memo, by the way. They didn't consider how they ought to best use this technology. Somehow, they, they found a way to take something as neutral and something as nondescript as bricks and use them to defy God. That's pretty impressive. I'm going to take this brick and use it to disobey God. That is, that's kind of hard to do. Well, it's easy if you think about the sinful nature, right? Well, here's what they said. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So we might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Is it, is it sinful to God to, to build stuff? That would disqualify some of you from your jobs. If that was the case, you couldn't build anything. Is that what this is about? No, it's important that we see that the key lies in some of the details. 
of the context of this scripture. So we have to go back to Genesis 9, chapter, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Immediately after Noah steps off the boat, God gives him a word. God tells Noah to do something. Here's what he says. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was what God gave Noah and his descendants to do. Fairly straightforward marching orders here from God. Here's what you're supposed to do. Have lots of babies and spread out over the globe. And in their spreading out over the earth, there would be a couple of things that would occur. First, God's glory would cover the earth as the waters do the sea. That's promised in a couple places in Scripture, particularly the book of Habakkuk. And second, the second thing that would happen was this was going to be part of God's redemptive plan to save mankind from sin and death. And that was to be fulfilled much later. But these are, if, you just are, if you're just there in that context and you just hear these words from God through Noah, it's fairly simple. Have lots of babies. Spread out. Go and, and, and subdue other lands. This is what you are to do. And these are very simple marching orders, but what do they do instead? They stay in one place and decide to build a massive tower that would extend into heaven, a place that no doubt hosted unauthorized worship practices. So you know there was some pagan worship going on. And here's what they wanted to do by building this thing is make a name for themselves. They wanted to be great on their own terms. They wanted to be great apart from the greatness that God bestows upon them through his mercy and favor. They didn't want to have much to do with God's plans and his promises for them, let alone much to do with the worship that he authorized for them which was very primitive. By that point, you had one man who was the head of the church. That was Noah. Surely he had very simple, straightforward worship practices for them. But they rejected the authority that God placed over them. They rejected the authoritative word of God. They did the opposite of what Noah spoke to them from the Lord. Consider this. The the Ten Commandments as we know them had yet to be issued in writing up to that point. Okay, Moses hadn't come on the scene yet. Surely they had the commandments from the Lord, but they weren't written in stone. But in hindsight, we can look back and we can reflect upon this. We can see that they broke the first, the second, the third, and the fourth commandments at least. They were on such a wicked endeavor that God had to come down and see for Himself the text says that. It says that he came down to see. And whenever the text says that, it's not as if God couldn't already see from where he was in heaven. Did you guys know that God is omnipresent? That he is everywhere at once? Okay, good. But what this means is that he came down to see. He came down to, to intervene and to judge, to deal with the situation. God takes divine counsel within himself. He has this conversation within the triune Godhead, within the Holy Trinity. And he says this, he says, Behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is just the beginning of what they'll do. 
and nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. This is a dire situation. You have a people who all speak the same language, a people who are so completely united in their evil and their destructive ways. You only have to look back at recent history to see how devastating this can be. Think about what even the smallest countries have done whenever they are hell-bent on evil. And what if there is one like this that is not restrained at all in the evil that it can accomplish? This is what led to the flood. But God had already promised not to do that again. This time, this time God demonstrates his divine brilliance. He goes down and he gives them multiple languages causing them to drop this destructive building project. And in a twist of beautiful irony, here's what the text says, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Did you catch that? Not only does God prevent them from destroying themselves and from destroying the world, from executing their evil upon the creation, but He also has them accomplish His will in the end. They end up obeying God's original command from Noah. And they do spread out over the earth. He didn't have to send a flood at this time. He, he made a new way for them to obey. Consider this. How often does God restrain evil and keep us from our own destruction? We see this is the testimony since the beginning going back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He sends them away from the garden as an act of judgment and punishment. But it's not just that. It's also an act of mercy. Because what is there in the garden? It is the tree of life. If Adam and Eve eat from that tree, as fallen creatures, if they eat from that tree, what happens to them? They are eternally fallen, sinful. So God places the cherubim at the gate of the garden. He says, you got to go away. You can't eat of this tree right now. Not with this sinful condition. So do you see how God restrains them from their own evil? That He provides for their salvation? That He gives them mercy? How about today? Think about your situation. Think about your life. I've talked quite a bit recently in my sermons about the problem of evil. And why does God allow so much suffering and this and that? I want to throw this peace to the puzzle at you. I want you to consider this. We so often complain about the evil that God permits to happen in this world, but think about this. What about all the evil that God restrains and that we don't even see? Think about that. The evil that we do not see because God has stated with His hand. Can you imagine what this world would be like if God allowed us to live up to our fullest potential? Think about that. The scripture has a word for that. It's called hell. Hell is when man, uh, excuse me, whenever God gives man up to the lust of the flesh. It's whenever God says, okay, do it your way. This is God's, it's what's called God's passive wrath. It's when he says, okay. And he lets go. How often has God kept you 
from causing your own destruction. More times than you can count, I'll bet. How often does He thwart our own sinful plans for the sake of our salvation? To make this practical for your everyday situation, there are conversations that you have in your head every day. There are thoughts that you have, these sinful thoughts that cross your mind all the time. And the only reason that you say no to these inclinations is with the aid of the Holy Spirit who guards you and preserves you in the one true faith. God restrains you from being your worst self all the time. And even when we do sin, we only go so far because God keeps us even then from going as far as we want to go which is away from his promises, away from his grace. He graciously pulls us back in. He convicts us of our sins. He grants us repentance and forgiveness. And he uses us for his redemptive purposes in Christ. Scripture uses stronger terms than that. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 says, You were dead in sins, a follower of the devil. But God made you alive together with Christ while you were his enemy. He gave you the Holy Spirit to revive your hostile and dead heart in which he would create and sustain faith in God's promises. You've been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, which means that God has not left you to your own devices and your own destruction. He has judged your sins in Christ. His Son, He has redeemed you for His own purposes. Because you're great? No, just because He loves you. Because He loves you. You didn't drag yourself to the baptismal font. He did. You were dead in sins. He's the one that got you there. He's the one that gave you His Holy Spirit. He's the one that put the defibrillator down on your chest and made you alive together with His Son. And the Spirit who regenerated you in those waters is continually given to you through the Word as He guards you from evil. This confusing of languages at the Tower of Babel did have consequences. It had short-term and even long-term consequences. Think of the bloodshed throughout the centuries that has occurred because of the, the divisions of culture and of language. All the bloodshed throughout human history But on the day of Pentecost, brothers and sisters, God did a new thing. He did a new thing. He made one people. He made a church united from every tribe, nation, and tongue by bringing them together under the cross of Christ. He gave them all a common language, the confession of Christ as Lord. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, He said, okay, Martin Luther was German. He said this. He said, I do not understand an Italian, nor does an Italian understand me. So there exists a natural opportunity for anger and for enmity. But if we both understand Christ, we mutually embrace and heartily kiss one another as fellow members. But where Christ is not present, There, the punishment of Babel still exists. 
So the hatred and the enmity that are caused by human sin, are over, they are only overcome by the peace of Christ, which is preached through human language, so that the Holy Spirit may be poured into the hearts of those who trust in Christ, those who will believe. That's what you are called to, Christians. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and having your sins forgiven and the Holy Spirit living within you, you are to bring this word of the gospel into those places where God has located you. That God's plan to reconcile all things to himself might continue. This is what he's doing in the world is reconciling all things to himself. And as we live in God's kingdom now, and as he, as he brings that kingdom to bear in our midst through his word, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters do the sea. May you go forth on this day of Pentecost with this new language of faith. May you make your confession boldly before the world, knowing that your Lord promises to keep you until the end. Amen.